0: The state of American music. These are the stories of the music that emanates from all corners of the great state of Tennessee. Easily the most musical place on the planet. The forgotten, the famous, the curious regardless of genre, era or styles. From the banks of the muddy Mississippi, stopping on Beale, past Music Row, through Lower Broadway and up in the hills and getting down on the holler. So raise a glass of sipping whiskey and take a ride with us and explore the music from the stages and studios in the world's greatest local music scene.
1: This is the music made up by and in Tennessee on this episode of Journeyman. Welcome back to another episode of Journeyman, Tennessee chapter. And this is Michael T. Davis, Casey Wood, Seth West, recording live, podcasting live, which you are not listening to, live, (laughs) from Music City, USA, recording in the Insanery here in Nashville. And we're moving along with our story on Johnny Ace, the late, great Johnny Ace. Before we get started, guys, uh, let's just chat a little bit about what's going on. Uh, so to a point, I brought it up last time we talked, uh, Seth, and the question I like to always ask is like, what records are you into right now? Like, what do you listen to? Like the past, maybe not on the way over, but like the past like couple days, what have you been listening to? I've been
2: stuck on this album uh, by a rapper named Freddie Gibbs. Okay. Uh, he did a collaborative album with a producer uh, out of LA called Mad Lib. I've heard yeah. And so this is their second album that they've done. It's collaboration, and it's kind of a – mishmash of styles like mad libs all sample based mm-hmm. really kind of old school did a lot of production for like uh i guess de la soul stuff like that back oh. in the 90s yeah um stone's Throw records he's like the main producer for all that freddie gibbs is like this hard gangster rapper dude from gary indiana and it's kind of a it's a weird mix of styles but they come together and it's just awesome so i've listened to that a ton nice good and i've been I'll listening to a couple soundtracks um, Cliff Martinez, titanic, cliff Martini- titanic. <laughs> uh, on repeat uh this dude cliff martinez does a lot of soundtracks for steven soderbergh and he works with this guy uh nicholas winding Refn, who did that movie drive with ryan gosling mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so he had a new uh show on amazon prime called too old to die young cliff martinez did the soundtrack for that really weird atmospheric electronic stuff uh i've
1: been jamming on that too so okay good yeah. yeah, those are good answers, Casey. I know what your answer is because we were mm, just talking about it. Yeah, well, I've been in this
0: mode right now where I'm trying to get my 12 year old to listen to all sorts of different music, and he actually doesn't really have opinions about music. So this is a really what? good time. He he likes things, and I'll tell you in a second what he's what he listens to when I'm not around. <laughs> um, but he doesn't. If, if I play something in the car, he never complains. And like I said earlier, we, we went on a road trip. Mm-hmm. So I had his undivided attention to play music. And since mom wasn't in the car, no genres were out of bounds. No volume level was out of bounds. We could rock out. We rocked out. And he was getting into it. And So that, I nice. don't care if he listens to it, any, You know what I played for him, but at least he heard it and enjoyed it. I've been listening to the soundtrack to Baby Driver. Have you seen that movie? No, I don't know anything. you seen that movie?
2: Uh, little bits and pieces of it. I kind of know the
0: premise. Yeah, it came out like two years ago. And the whole movie is about a kid who is the getaway car driver for Robbers. And he has his playlists. And every heist, he ha- listens to different things. And he's got dozens of iPods. And each one is like, okay, we're doing this. I'm listening to this. And that kind of thing. And so the the but the general soundtrack to the movie, which has probably fifty songs in it, is basically a survey of like stacks and Motown re- stuff. It's mostly that era stuff.
1: I can't wait to do Stacks, boys! I'm so excited. Yeah, that's gonna be like <laughs> nine seasons. <laughs>
0: so, so with the Baby Driver soundtrack is awesome because it's just it's just all that stuff. Okay, and um, and interestingly enough about that movie they had the soundtrack picked before they wrote the movie. They huh. knew the premise, they picked the songs, they got permission to use the songs before they went ahead because everything in the movie is choreographed to the music. The windshield wipers on the car move in sync with the music.
1: Like what we were talking about with E.T. and John Williams.
0: Yeah. This was off mic, everyone, this is a different story. Yeah, so it, it, it's worth seeing. It's probably also Kevin Spacey's last movie. <laughs> oh. <laughs> So I think it came out in 2017. It's great. It's a great movie.
1: Maybe that's why I didn't hear about it cuz if it came out in 2017. It was, was after, right about the time
0: yeah, that yeah. yeah, he was getting blasted. So anyways, so that, so Ben loves the movie. So he has been listening to the soundtrack. I don't mind. I love it too. So that's I've been listening to a lot of that. That's super rad. Mm-hmm. But in the car for the cuz I drove 2300 miles in the last 5 days, we have I've been playing him Van Halen, 1984, Rush Moving Pictures. We listened to De La Soul. We listened to, um, I mean, oh, I can't even. Just, Did you play him Nebraska? No, we didn't play, I didn't play that. I found out that last year in Robotics Club, they listened to ACDC, like during making building robots. <laughs> so <laughs> I was totally, <laughs> yeah. I was blown away. I, I was is- so excited. I was like, so you like A C D? He knew all the ACDC stuff. He knew back in black, and That's he awesome. for those about to rock, all that stuff he knew it, and i and I had no idea, so i was i had a little tear, yeah, yeah my dad just, played
2: a c d c for me, I loved it then, yeah,
0: he knew it, and so I've been showing him, I've been kind of just expanding upon the a c d c obviously you know a c d c fans will say rush is nothing like that. I get it. But you know what I mean. Like, just iconic things from the 80s, late 70s, early 80s, that I thought he should know as well. And of course, he, he smiled when he heard Tom Sawyer because Tom Sawyer was a featured song in one episode of The Simpsons that I didn't know about. and uh, Or actually, no,
1: Family Guy. Yeah. <laughs> I got a funny ACDC story. I feel like I may have either said this on the podcast earlier, and if so, we'll just edit it out. Or I tell this story all the time because it's really fascinating to me. Because when I was Ben's age, right, when we were Ben's age, like middle school, like I was a big ACDC fan. And this is when they were still cranking out Mm hits-ish, right? This is mid-period Brian Johnson. And uh, I loved it, right? And then like as I got older, just the ridiculousness of classic rock radio and the ubiquity of it and the sameness of it, I just really got to the point where not even I just – Didn't want to hear it. I didn't like it anymore. And then uh, I was at Gerald's Old Dutch Tavern in Sandusky, Ohio in 1996, maybe 1997. And a record I hadn't heard, which was a live version, uh, and it was Whole lot of Rosie came on, which was a song I was only tangentially aware of because I'd sort of pushed it out of my head for like 10 years. So a whole lot of Rosie live in a jukebox in a dingy bar waiting on a greasy hamburger, and it just slayed me. I was like, holy shit, this song is fucking awesome. And I realized that part of the problem when you listen to music is the the ruts you get into Mm -hmm. mentally, right? It's like the anti-nostalgia sort of going on to the last episode where it's like if you get stuck into this particular piece, you get... If you had never heard of Leonard Skinner, imagine a parallel universe where everything was totally normal and then I just played you um, Freebird, you would be baked. You'd be like, holy shit, my face is melted off. This is the greatest thing I've ever heard of, right? Yeah. It's the same reason why people love uh, the band Love, right, from L.A. Like, with all due deference singing about frozen snot stuck to your shirt, like, it lyrically, it's not great. It's psychedelic. It's a black Jim Morrison, but blah, blah, blah. I mean, it's good. It's not great, but it's more interesting to, like, the rock press indie kids because it wasn't big. And so if you take music at its own face value, if you remove it from sort of the garbage that comes around it sometimes and you take it for just what it is, you realize there's a lot there. Mm-hmm. Now, sometimes that garbage makes it more fun, the myth, the, mm-hmm. the stories, the nostalgia, all of those things. But then sometimes that inverse is true. And, and now, since that day, it's been 20-plus years later, I will defend ACDC to the death, and I've become a bigger fan because I went through that. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, records I've been listening to lately, really, I bought this one. I, I heard the song, I don't even know where. I, I did the SoundCloud thing. And it was a band called Nude Party. I loved it. Bought it immediately. Oh, yeah. I listened to half the song. Uh, and I haven't listened to the record yet because I just got it in the mail. But more importantly, the new Bad Religion record came out. And if anybody knows anything about me, my religion is Bad Religion. <laughs> it's a fucking fantastic record. They kill it. They're the greatest people on earth. I want to be in Bad Religion. They already have three guitar players now. I don't know what I would do. Not that I could play guitar in Bad Religion, because I can't. Do they need a tambourine player? They need something, but I want to be in Bad Religion. (laughs) I bought my tickets for when they come to town. I love Bad Religion. But so did Johnny Ace, right? (laughs) 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 And so, Bad Religion had a bad mid-period, too. There were some portions of their career that were not as great as the early, or when they came back to find their sound. So we're in the mid-career piece of... Of Johnny Ace. So he's had a couple of hits. He had a couple of clunkers in the beginning, which were ostensibly demos. Uh, Don Roby, uh, founder of Peacock Records and the label and the publishing company. He pairs Big Mama Thornton and Johnny Ace as a package show on tour. Essentially at this point, his two biggest artists in terms of sales, in terms of gate revenue. So the band, depending on what was needed and when, uh, was Johnny Otis or Johnny Board as issues came up. The backing band was varied according to whoever was available as well, but Johnny Board and Johnny Otis were the band leaders. Uh, so Johnny Ace had, had his string of hits. Big Mama Thornton had this huge hit of paying dividends. They had a ton of press. Everything was going really well. They were this solid live act duo and things were so hot, this is fascinating to me. If you wanted to book Johnny Ace for a show, Don Roby's booking agency, run by Evelyn Johnson, of course, demanded that you had to also book Bobby Blue Bland and B.B. King. Bobby Blue was on Peacock. BB King remembers on Aladdin it was another label, but they had them as a booking agent, uh, and so they said, "Oh, you want Johnny? You better get BB King." That to me is fascinating, right? Yeah. Once again, goes to this story of like where and how. Like uh, you wouldn't think nowadays that that BB King would play second fiddle to anybody, but he was like, "Do you want fries with that act?" Yeah. By the way, Casey, have you guys been invited back to play to BB King's? No. Do you want me to talk to Don Roby? <laughs>
2: yeah, you got his number? <laughs> it was that comment you made on that earlier episode. It was. It, it was.
1: It totally leaked. <laughs> and it was so funny to me. Like, it just shows the roundabout way of life that we were sitting here talking about BB King for so long, and like it totally spaced on me. And Casey, it seemed, that he actually had a standing gig to play at BB King's. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you know,
0: it's just another restaurant <laughs> on Second Avenue. At some point, you know, yeah. they all kind of look the same. Yeah, I shouldn't say that. I mean, it's not. It is unique, but it is. I mean, it's Broadway. It's a tourist thing.
1: Yeah, but you won't be invited back now. Well,
0: hopefully. I don't think not what you said
2: me. was that bad.
1: No,
0: and I, it's a, actually. You know what? I think it's I, I will say this. Unbiased, if I was to walk down there and find a place to go in and listen to music, that would probably be, that and Acme would probably be the two.
1: Yeah, 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 Acme's great.
0: I mean, you can, I mean, don't, don't get me wrong, the Honky Tonks are uniquely Nashville, but I wouldn't spend much time in one. I would rather go sit in a place like B.B. King's and listen to the blues or go down to Acme and,
1: you know, I mean, those to me are more fascinating. See, Robert's to me is, is in my blood now. I go to Yeah, oh, yeah it's Dave. awesome. That's the only one I go to, and I love it when I go there. They always right. got a hot band. Always. Hot guitar player. Always, man. We're killing it. Yeah. Everything else. You see Matthew Lee down there?
0: You ever see him play? No, I don't know Matthew. He's one of the regulars there. I went to college with him. He and I were in a jazz group together in, in college.
1: You should put together the a Blue s-
0: Six. Yeah, we could have an episode on that band, too. Blue Six. <laughs> but Matthew, Jeff Leopard,
1: Reunion, BB <laughs> Kings, Broadway, Mondays at noon.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Matthew's great. You would, you would love his plant. Okay. Yep, he's very good. You should go check him out. You you I, make it. I think he plays Mondays at, at noon. <laughs>
1: Probably <laughs> <laughs> when they're doing construction. So now it's time uh, for Don Roby and Johnny Ace to hit gold again, right? So, and again, they go with this same formula that had worked so well for them: take a hit song, rewrite the lyrics, keep the melody structure change it just enough, keep the chord changes, Johnny would come up with just different enough use the existing Memphis recordings and demos but record on Roby's dime in a more professional studio this next song is The Clock by Johnny Ace wait a minute so he's still doing the thing he just got done
0: suing someone else for doing?
1: Hmm. <laughs> they, call <that> irony. <laughs> Do they call that irony is that the right use of
0: the
2: word? <clears throat> Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's iron. come back real
0: soon. the clock
1: and So that was the clock by Johnny Ace. Seth said he liked it. It's good. I like that one, yeah. 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 I wonder what song he copied for it. <laughs> uh, I don't, I'm sure it's in there somewhere. It, it's, uh, his singing is, is come a fair way. Like I feel like it's a little bit more confident. It's yeah. a little bit smoother. The production is nice. Yeah. Casey liked the slap delay. Uh, tried to understand what the inference was. I said, it's like a clock. I said it sounds like a pendulum. On you, a, on you, a p- no, you just said a pendulum. Well, on a c- clock. It, first of all, a pendulum could be on a pit. They wrote a whole fucking story about it. There's plenty of places where a pendulum could be. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> so that was uh, uh, the next attempt and try to do it, right? So to be perfectly frank, at this point in time, I'm going to control V, control C on everything anyway. Like if you are making this much money and you're doing a good why break with the, the formula. So with all due deference to the creative process, I understand why they did it and it makes sense, right? But oddly enough, this song was credited from a songwriting perspective to one Mr. David James Mattis of Memphis, Tennessee, founder of Duke Records. Why? We're not really quite sure, but it could be postulated that because Mattis and Roby were in the sort of throes of a legal dispute over the ownership of Duke Records at this moment, that perhaps Roby says, hey, screw you, you know what, just take this goddamn song and I'm throwing you a good guy. Maybe it was a political move, a, a chess move to show that he wasn't this sort of shark trying to get as much money as he possibly could. Mattis claimed that there was $200,000 worth of collections in arrears off of royalties from Duke. Not a small amount of money in 19... I mean, that's like millions of dollars in today's money, right? So this record was released, but God damn it, it was unpublished from a writing perspective, right? So Mattis, still being the novice to collect everything any performance rights must have been an affiliated BMI songwriter, which he was not. <laughs> so maybe our own boy Roby knew this. Yeah, wouldn't surprise me. Right, would not surprise you. Yeah. So yeah. he never had to pay the publishing. So no publishing was paid because he wasn't technically a songwriter. That's like me writing the next financier hit, and, and I go to collect, and Seth is like, oh, yeah? <laughs> what are you going to do? Yeah, good luck getting blood out of a stone. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, God damn it. So Roby is either genius or just like a bloodthirsty shark or a mix of everything. I mean, this dude has got it going on. He's really lucky. I was going to say, yeah, there's some
2: luck in there too. Yeah. It's a perfect shit. combo.
1: It's it, it, Right, it's a perfect combo. So, regardless, the clock went on to go be Johnny's third hit record. Third hit record in a row. Doesn't happen, especially at a time like when the way these were recorded, right? They didn't go and record an LP, a, a bunch of songs in one setting. It was like, I'm going to make this record or a handful of records or a handful of tracks and we'll just release them as a bit, right? But this is three hit records in a row in less than a year, right? This is years before any cover songs were to be recorded. This song went on. To, to go be a number one hit in July. This is when things start to get interesting. Now, he was a proven commodity. Now he's just adding to that layer cake. To me, this is where the story of early rock and roll and Johnny Ace and Memphis and, and, and things sort of blur the line. So the song, and as all previous hits, were mastered to 78 RPMs only. And that's according to the studio logs. So just quick pause for our listeners who don't know. Maybe people don't know this, but like to me, it's as I've known this since I've known life, right? Records come in a number of different formats, right? The long playing record, the full LP, right, which is 45 minutes, 50, 60 minutes of songs, whatever it is, is 33 and a third rotation per minute. The record is spinning around, right? The forty-five, which was the smaller seven inch, which Uh, came before the 33 uh, was uh, 45 RPM rotations per minute the first vinyl records the first records excuse me uh after wax cylinders were 78 rpms they were actually not made of vinyl but of shellac which was a heavy brittle material and i've actually seen this in you guys i have a couple 78s at home that i just keep for oddities purpose. Mm-hmm. but like if you go see an old symphony it's like like an accordion sleeve and there'll be like 15 20 records of 78s because 78 Rotations per minute is pretty fast, right? Mm-hmm. But that was the speed in which records were played from a technical standpoint. There was something to do with the grooves in the record and the way it was carved in the schlack and the fidelity. And it didn't allow for a uh, long playing, right? It didn't allow for symphonies. And that's why it was so problematic. You guys have 78s at home, mm-hmm. right? I don't think I have any 78s. But you say maybe, them, you know Maybe some. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Casey? Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. You probably have some here
0: in the next room, right? No, but I got a bunch of. My aunt was a huge opera fan, and she had like Wagner and all sorts of old symphonic things that she that I got from her, and uh, yeah, they had to come in box sets, though. Yeah, it. I mean, yeah, they were huge. Right. So, there's also the sixteen.
1: Also the oh yeah yeah
0: yeah.
1: Oh, tell me about that. Like, just so we all know, those must have
0: sounded like crap.
1: (laughs) No. Very noisy.
0: Yeah. I'm not sure what the purpose of those were, but I remember having turntables that could play 16 mm-hmm. RPM. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And even new record players now sometimes you'll see 78s, right? There was a period of time, I think, once the 33 and the 45 formats were as solidified as an LP mm-hmm. and a single format, that they only came in 45 and 33, and you would just toggle mm-hmm. between those two. And I suppose... Maybe millennials, all the hip kids now know it because the records are cool again, right? Uh, but Probably just
2: kn- 33 and 45. Though, yeah, you know.
1: yeah, yeah. You know, when we were kids, we would just chipmunks every LP that we had and make it 45. <laughs> yeah. One, right? uh, but black adults at this time, they're still only buying records in the 78 RPM format. The 45 was still new. So... During World War II, there was a ban on records being made. And I think there was a strike in there, a musician strike somewhere. So there was not a lot of records that weren't made that weren't for the war, form, war, war effort. All of these 78s were out there, right? Black folks just in general being less economically uh, flush were slower to adopt the 45 post-war and now we're talking only four or five six years after people started to come home GIS were getting ready right the 45 was actually kind of a kitty record it had been sitting in development at RCA for a long time but they didn't want to do anything with it right they were so the labels and the players, the the manufacturers of the record players, were so vested in the 78 that, well, why I introduce a new format? As you all know, it changes the scene, right? I mean, in our lives, we've seen formats changed five, six times at this point. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, the 45s are for the jukeboxes. Not yet. 78s were still in jukeboxes. Really? Yeah, which I've never seen a 78 jukebox. No, I would have I never have thought that. Right? I mean, I suppose from the, everything I've read in my research on this and then just the timeline what it was hmm. or maybe they were coterminous and they played maybe there was a 78 jukebox and a 45 jukebox but i know for a fact that 78 jukeboxes played and the jukes are one of the main reason why 45s took off because of all of the mechanical aspects of dropping a 45 remember it had like the 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 magazine was mm-hmm. there was a lot of rotations in there well with a shellac 78 which was heavy dropping that repeatedly onto the spindle would cause it to crack. Mm. Interesting fact, if I sign uh Seth to a record deal right now today, I will do my best to put in a ten percent breakage number so that uh ten percent of all records being shipped will be broken and then I essentially am paying him ten percent less on all records mm. because records break. Right? Well CDs don't break that much. Vinyl doesn't break that much, but it comes from the 78 era when 10% of records being shipped would show up to the stores or the jukebox distributors broken. So they actually had to bake that into the numbers, and then it was just carried on Mm -hmm. as a way to make more money from the labels. Brilliant. So these two formats are existing at the same time. 45 RPM records were sort of just a novelty. And and you guys know growing up, like my first record player was a Smurfs record player and I was buying <laughs> McDonald's Happy Meals and getting the record that played along with them. Mm-hmm. I have the Star Wars records, you know, I have like all, and then I started to buy singles, you know. But they were seen as a novelty and that was kind of novelty-ish in the mid-1980s. It was 10 times more so in the uh mid 50s and the way the labels and the in the in the manufacturers did it of the machines it was the same thing all the records were colored right like and mm. so they were bright and they the, the they were inexpensive records 69 79 cents right whereas a uh, more serious buyers it was you know 20 30 40 cents more and so it was seen as this kiddies play right which actually plays out well as rock and roll progresses just because of the type of music that it was. But they coexisted in the market for a fair amount of time, but black folks didn't have that sort of expendable cash, and they were slow to move, right? So all of uh, Johnny's records had been mastered to 78. So this newest hit was uh, on 78, as all of Johnny's previous records had been. So at the point, Don Roby's sales uh, across all his spiritual and secular music in the year 1953 were well over 2 million units. So this guy's killing it, right? I don't know if that's $2 million or 2 million units. Regardless, (laughs) he's moving a lot of product, right? Yeah. So he's on this hot streak. He launched a new label called, I love this name, Progressive Jazz. If you're gonna have one of the coolest jazz bands ever be called the Modern Jazz Quartet, like, why wouldn't Progressive Jazz be a cool label name, too, right? So, on Progressive Jazz, though, he signed a crop of new artists, Little Junior Parker. He gave Johnny Otis his own billing uh, as an artist himself, and Casey's buddy, <laughs> Little Richard. There you go. How about it? So, you have Don Roby to thank <laughs> for your work with Little Richard. Amazing amazing right thank you so why would they not have just been peacock artists what's the benefit of the label uh, diversification maybe i mean if you think about what little junior parker and johnny otis i don't know little richard his early stuff was kind of gospely, like weird like his very very early stuff right? mm-hmm. I, heard, I heard someone terry gross a couple years ago think songs i had never heard and i mean it was weird and but it had nothing awesome. to do with jazz it had nothing, to, none of them had to do with, with jazz, right? And it, and then he, Don is kind of confused because he's got this Duke Records and he's got Peacock Records and he's running them coterminously. And at the same time, one of them is supposed to be more spiritual and one right. of them is supposed to be more secular, but it's not always the case. And um, so his branding in that regard seems a little bit...
0: Might but, have just been that he needed more promotion people if he's getting bigger and he's having more success. You know, that's a lot of times why... Labels have offshoots. They can have different people focusing on different markets. Might have also been the fact that he's being sued by Mattis. And this
2: is a way to isolate money from other artists from having to ever, you know... That's a good idea. Knowing what we know about Roby, you figure there's got to be some strictly business benefit to doing this. He saw some numbers and said, this is why I should do this. He might
0: be hedging his bet going, if I lose and Mattis gets a piece of this label, he's not just going to get a piece of Johnny Ace, he's going to get a piece of all this. So... I'm going to start another little compartment here that's separate. Yeah, you know? that's a pretty good hypothesis. Thanks. Casey hit
1: it on the head. I, I'm uh, I, 100% positive that's the case, and it's never been stated in any of the material mm-hmm. I've read. Once again, smart guy. Smart, The whiskey smart is guy. kicking in. <laughs> it is. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Tennessee Whiskey. I would, I'm played, drinking Crown, though. So. Are, are, yeah, all, I I'm, I'm drinking bourbon. I, I played uh, some of the episodes to my wife. She wanted to hear the demos before we sort of And and I was like, man, that sounds really unprofessional. Like, you can hear us drinking whiskey. She's like, no, that works. (laughs) (laughs) It's the whole point. It's the whole point of this goddamn show and what we're doing with this podcast is that we are literally doing what we would normally do. We're just putting structures and microphones in front of it. If this was a normal whatever today is Wednesday, we would have gotten together some place the been like, hey, what records are you listening to? Hey, can you believe this shit about this guy named Johnny Ace? This is all we do, right? Yeah. So flashback to the Bahari brothers. Remember these guys out on the road trying to find artists? They were the ones who recorded in the YMCA. Every time I go to the downtown YMCA, there's a little piano there, and now uh, there's a guitar there is, with a little sign that says, skilled players only, which is the most Nashville thing you could say. Somebody <laughs> was playing it the other day. Quite skilled, <laughs> I would say. So the Bahari brothers... They said, hey, we're going to record these artists in the YMCA, which I still can't believe. But they only did one track with Johnny Ace, and so they had rights to it. Now Johnny's now got three big hits, and they said, oh, let's make some money. There is chum in the water. There is blood to be had here. And so what they do is they put out this record uh, after Johnny's third hit one, and they put uh, the Earl Forrest record that they record at the same time as the B-side. Roby obviously wasn't promoting it, didn't care. He didn't see it as a potential to even raise Johnny's uh, profile anymore. The record didn't go anywhere. The press realized what it was. They didn't really want to talk about it, that it was just a cash grab hastily put out, and they sort of just let it be. It had only been two years at this point since that track had actually been recorded. In only 12 months... Since Johnny's been on the road and cutting hit after hit for Don. So pretty fast time. So to Seth's point earlier, he's got three projects going on, and it takes him 28 years to put a record together. (laughs) (laughs) This motherfucker in two years' time goes from demoing at the YMCA to three hit records and booking night after night after night. So my question is, Seth, get your shit together. Why can't can't you get your shit together? Boom,
2: damn. Right? Well, I didn't have Don Roby. You do now with Casey.
1: So, <laughs> we're gonna listen to a song uh, recorded this time. It's called uh, Midnight Hours Journey. When
2: those midnight hours journey, I was in my bed alone.
1: So that was Midnight Hours Journey, released by the Bahari Brothers on Flare Records number 1015. It was a single side recorded with the portable equipment by the Bahari Brothers in the Memphis YMCA before Johnny was even Johnny Ace. Not copyrighted. Released September 1953. No chart action. That's it. It's actually the most difficult, as you would imagine, single to acquire for... Johnny Ace Collectors. And for if there's any Johnny Ace Collectors out there, by the way, with doubles, send me some. Because I've never seen an actual Johnny Ace record in person since I've been working on this project. And I would like to have something just for my own personal collection. Send three so me, Seth, and Casey <laughs> all have. Yeah. And make sure they are different interests. ones
0: so we can swap them between us.
1: <laughs> yes. And- I want the most valuable one. Have you checked Discogs for Johnny Ace Records? I haven't. I'm kind of afraid to. Yeah, they're probably expensive. So this is fun to me in that the typical stuff that you think seems so slimy, but it's not slimy. It's just business, man. I mean, the Bahari brothers traveled from Los Angeles to Memphis. I mean, it's like 2,000 miles to try and find something, right? And they're sitting on this. They own the rights. Like, why not exploit it? And I'm using the word exploit in the capitalist sense, not in the... Yeah, they waited till the... Strike when
2: the iron was hot, right. right?
1: They had something to sell. If they would have
2: put it out a year before, they wouldn't have made any money. Right. I mean,
1: yeah. It it would have been of little value, right? Sure. And and you could appreciate Johnny being like, oh, whatever, Don saying, screw you. I'm wondering if I'm done, I don't not necessarily spend my own money, but do something to it's another hit by one of your artists. You already have all these other ones in the can or ready to go. Wouldn't that raise all boats? You know, wouldn't that like mm-hmm. sell more records? But he's not getting
2: paid off of it, so he's not going to invest in it. Right. If it had been a hit, Roby would have tried to, you know, buy it,
1: get yeah. the rights to it. Someday, right, 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 probably. right. And, and rightly so, right? So Johnny's out on the road. Let's not forget, in the past two years since that song had been recorded, remember he has a family. But his wife and at least one child... This dude would come home to Memphis, right? So he was staying at the Hotel Mitchell, which was sort of the flop house for all the Beale Street guys. Uh, and he would come back just to play, right? Just for shows or work or sometimes he would come back, you know, in the early or like the previous year to uh, go with Mattis. He wouldn't call his family. He wouldn't ring him up. He wouldn't stop him by South Memphis to go talk to his wife and his young toddler, he sure as hell wasn't sending any of this new money home. There was no support. There was no nothing. His mom was raising this family. This guy had no permanent home. He just didn't want to go home, and so all he—the closest thing he had was the hotel rooms on the road and the Mitchell Hotel on 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 Beale Street. Interestingly enough, though, when he would come to Memphis, of course he would have to work, as you would. So he was being billed right as you would as a booking agent. His mom and his wife didn't live in that world, right? They were Christians. They were going to church, to listen to spiritual music. They wouldn't see that sort of stuff. His wife and his brother had heard just generally, maybe it was a black newspaper or a billboard, not a billboard, but a, a flyer or something. They heard through promotions that Johnny was playing Memphis. And so they went to go see him at Club Handy, which I assume is named after W.C. Handy. So he shows up, In his hometown, about to play a show, his kid brother and his wife come to see him. And Johnny's got a side piece there, which I fucking love. He sees his wife. He plays like half a set. He goes, he talks to her. He sends her home with his brother. And she doesn't even watch the rest of the the set. Now, where would he have gotten this girl? He doesn't ever show up in Memphis. I guess it's because he's a super hit star, right? Sure as hell didn't want to talk to his, at this point, I don't know, 16-year-old wife that he's betrothed to that's living in his mother house with his own kids that he's not sending any money home to. Shows up with his brother. Sees her watching him. At the set break, sends her home and then finishes out the rest of the show. Okay. So, another date, he's back in Memphis. There's this big car that they would drive around, you know, like old school, like almost like the Ghostbusters type car, right? And it was painted with Johnny Ace on the side. Like, hey, the <laughs> Johnny Ace band, right? So, at this point, now they know what he's called. His mother and his sister see this coming out of a store. Hey, Johnny's in town playing. Johnny gets out of the car. No, they don't know he's in town. They just see his name on the side of a car. So his mother, of course, is dressing him down. Hey, M. Effer, why don't you grow the hell up? Why don't you be a goddamn adult? I'm raising your family. What are you doing out here? This dude peels off a stack of hundreds, throws it to his mom and his sister, pieces out, doesn't talk to him again. goes plays his show. So Johnny Ace's idea of marital fidelity is slightly different huh. than ours. What do you guys think?
2: I mean, he was in his world. They were in theirs. He probably shouldn't have gotten married and had a kid in the first place. You can't and live that
1: man. life at that time with that income and be married. Just, you know. Right. Yeah, because he could do
2: whatever he wanted. And uh, too many temptations, I suppose. Yeah. When you're a star.
1: Yeah. He also sounds like a complete a-hole, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, what an asshole thing to do. Especially yeah. your mom. Right, you know? right, 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 right. Not even like... It, it probably felt bad, and then you get ashamed. You know, you do stupid shit, and you don't really correct it. You just avoid it.
2: Mm-hmm. I think sometimes he was he, so young. How old is he right here? Is he even twenty? Uh, uh, not even twenty, probably. I don't know. I mean, you know, yeah. I mean, not not that
1: not that youth is an excuse, but but he he grew up in the church. He had a father figure. He had a, a strong father figure, right? Like it was a pastor, preacher. You know, I think people don't realize. I mean, I think intellectually they know that. Um, being a musician is challenging in a lot of ways professionally. Like, and I only know this tangentially through people I know, but I mean, I look at Casey's own life, right? Um, Casey, by the way, lives in the house with his wife and his child, <laughs> just to be perfectly clear there. But like, And my side piece is over here. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Casey came home from Wisconsin from vacation uh, and then immediately goes into the studio. He hadn't seen his wife in... A week, a week and a half, right? A yeah. week. And then he records for six, seven, eight, nine hours till one o'clock in the morning, right? Like, and that's a normal thing to do, you know? But your wife bought into that. She knew because she was a musician herself. She's in the music business on a completely different aspect of it. It's hard, right? Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's this. You're, when you're in the music business, you're working with people who work when other people don't. <laughs>
1: Right. right.
0: You know, people don't go see shows from 9 to 5 Monday through Friday. They go after they get done with their 9 to 5.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. Uh, I remember when I first met Jessica and I, we discussed this because Casey and I have worked a couple of 24 hours in a row together. It still hurts thinking about it. She's like, that's what I signed up for. Like, I knew it, you know. Uh, And she's a trooper, right? So despite being on the road all the time, having this surplus of money, having this surplus of girls. Johnny Ace actually was a pretty shy guy, which seems so weird. So he was a piano player and is a singer. He wasn't like a musician. He didn't seem to have – not a musician, but he wasn't the band leader. He wasn't the creative force. He was showing up, he was singing his songs, and he was piecing out. Oftentimes – Johnny Otis and Johnny Board would provide a piano player in an attempt to try and get Johnny Ace to sing, like, and like address the crowd. He didn't want to do that. He always fired him for the night or dismissed them, told him to go do something else, and he would just sit there sort of placidly and just sing his plaintive love songs. He didn't have the presence of somebody like Big Mama Thornton. He didn't have the flair of Little Richard. He had, he had. sad, longing songs, right? And that was an interesting piece, right? Because as a portion of how all this works, you can see where the appeal of Willie May is or the appeal of Little Richard is because of their flamboyancy, right? Mm -hmm. Seth, because of the kind of music he listens to, he goes to uh, weird parties and art houses where a guy hits play on a laptop and (laughs) then turns around and never looks at the crowd, right? (laughs) You think I'm joking, but I've actually seen Seth do that. I've been to those shows. <laughs> so
0: he was an early influencer of Miles Davis. Don't look at the audience.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. Miles also had the clout at that point. You know, I mean. So Johnny had the hits, right? He had this handsome good looks. He was young. He was working really hard. It was a fantastic formula for success. So, of course, what do you do? Rinse and repeat. Control-V, Control-C, right? That's 1953. They release a new song, Saving My Love For You. You said you want me Baby, I'm glad
0: I feel so good now Cause you're not mad Please
1: believe me I'm saving my love for you. So you. was Saving My Love For You by Johnny Ace, obviously. It was a nice song. It was great. No, nothing killer. Um, I love this idea that there's this cad, this sort of hound dog of a guy, if you will, out there with girls in every city, with a wife at home that he doesn't see, with a family he doesn't support. And he's just singing these plaintive, longing love ballads to Who right <laughs> saving my love for you like fuck you johnny ace i think you were giving your love to any girl that like you came across like i'm not hating the player and i don't even hate the game i love the game but like i get it but don't turn around i guess it's just marketplace right you understood that the yeah. girl's buying his record they wanted to hear that yeah, saving a my song. love He didn't you didn't say
0: how long he was saving his love <laughs> From maybe just till the show's over then <laughs> <laughs>
1: So the B side to that record uh, was a song called Yes Baby, which was pretty like obviously about coitus, about love making whatever the euphemisms they would have used. Fun fact, Big Mama Thornton singing back up on that song on Yes Baby. So maybe they had something going on. Maybe not. She was not credited as the singer. And there's uh, a position that perhaps Don Roby didn't want to sully Johnny Ace's reputation by marrying Big Mama Thornton's name to him. So, to bring the last episode sort of full circle, where, you know, Big Mama Thornton is who she is and is this is a great creative force and has this killer song, and they now are packaged together as a tour. Oh, and now they're gonna start recording together. But, but. Big Mama Thornton is still not quite in the same market, so let's just that's interesting to me. Um, I mean goddamn this guy. <laughs>